Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another episode of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. Our guest today is Dr. Michael DiGiacomo, a podiatrist and former pro sports consultant, and we'll discuss how to put your feet first. I'm Jason James, executive producer, and I'm joined by our esteemed host, Dr. Michael Lenore, a physician, medical reporter, and past president of the National Medical Association. Dr. Lenore, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Wondering what the latest in medicine is. Well, I think obviously medicine is still dominated by the coronavirus, and uh, certainly it's dominated by the fact that the president uh, was admitted with an active coronavirus infection. And everything he's done since the infection uh, set foot on his body has been the absolute wrong thing to do. But it was admitted that he was diagnosed on Thursday before uh, he got on that uh, helicopter to go to New Jersey. Uh, Then once he was diagnosed, he thought he could kind of handle all this at home. And I have no doubt that when he left the White House to go to Walter Reed, that he was very sick, that he was having some respiratory issues, he had a fever, and it looked like he was going into a very acute phase of a coronavirus infection. So he waited a long time, but he finally got to the hospital. Once he got to the hospital, we don't know what happened. Uh, for the first time, as I can remember, when there was a crisis in health with a president, we know nothing about any of his clinical course. We don't know how high his fever went. We don't know how low his oxygen went. We don't know whether he had pneumonia. Uh, and he traipsed around and had quarters at Walter Reed for a couple of days. Then he did another absolutely crazy thing. He got in a, uh, in a car and rode around the block to wave to his supporters to show uh, strength. And here's a man who's never been to war, who's never shown any inclination to take physical risk, feeling that riding in a car past your supporters is an act of strength. I mean, it just blows my mind. It was an act, it was a completely unacceptable, an immature act by a patient who should have stayed where he was, that they were concerned that he was pretty sick because you don't get those antibodies and you don't get, unless they think that you're slipping in the darkness. But we don't know that. We don't know what his physical condition was when he went in, and we certainly don't know what his physical condition was when he went out. Then when he got back to the White House, uh, he said absolutely all the wrong things. Like he saw Attila the Hun, who has conquered the coronavirus, and that somehow will give us, uh, those of us who look at him, a sense of admiration. I think it's foolish, it's dangerous, uh, it's behavior that should not ever take place. Because now, the more we know about this virus, the less we know. I mean, the fact that not only is the virus itself a problem, the drugs that they give you to treat the virus can change your mental state and cause side effects. And then after you, the virus is over, you have many patients with residual cardiac and neurologic problems. The, the thing has gotten so bad that I read an article, I don't know how true it was, but I think it was true, that Donald Trump Jr. wanted an intervention. He thought that some of his behavior was a, having a significant uh, mental issue. And it said he suggested an intervention. 
So uh, that dominated the whole news cycle. I think there are some good things to come out of that because most intelligent people got to learn a lot more about coronavirus, and most intelligent people would take the um, not only his illness, but all the people around him that got sick probably from him. I mean, so that I think they take away from that that this virus is a dangerous virus. It's not necessarily to be feared, but it's certainly uh, to be avoided. Some new information on the virus itself, I think it's pretty clear now that, that the virus can ex- can only spread through touching and, you know, feeling things, but also can be spread airborne. I think that's a significant characteristic of a virus that potentially and has demonstrated to be fairly dangerous uh, and to be avoided. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, on the part of the president, it's easy to sit there and pontificate when you have access to some of the greatest doctors in the world right on hand and the ability to jump into a helicopter at a moment's notice if you needed medical attention. Um, So to say, don't be afraid of the virus uh, is very short-sighted when you compare the access he has to healthcare to the access that uh, most other Americans, especially people of color, have to healthcare. Um, So definitely poor on his part. But let's talk a little bit about feet. Dr. Lenore, introduce us to our guest today. The special guest today is Dr. Michael DiGiacomo. Dr. DiGiacomo is a podiatrist specializing in problems of the foot. He's not just a podiatrist, but he is probably one of the most respected podiatrists in our area. Dr. DiGiacomo is a member of a number of professional organizations, and we're pleased to have him on our podcast today. Welcome, Dr. DiGiacomo. Thank you, Dr. Lenore. What are you recommending for infants and, uh, and children? Because... So often we see infants with little gym shoes and very expensive uh, products. Well, first of all, the foot is the best conveyance to transport your body. And when you're learning to walk, having uh, the foot on the ground is basically a very important condition to uh, achieve. What I'm saying is you don't need to press shoes onto kids at too young of an age. If they're going to be outdoors and it's a cold or a dirty environment or something like that, or they're, they're going to be out in the wet and you need to wear a rain boot, that's appropriate. But as far as a toddler and even beyond toddlers, uh, frequently they don't need shoes. And one of the problems that we saw frequently in, in podiatry was the parent invests money in a quality shoe, and then they want to hang on to that shoe because they've got such an investment in it, and of course the child continues to grow. So it would be far better for that child to go unshot or without shoes for a period of time rather than trying to hold on to a shoe that is probably inappropriate for that size foot. First of all, what are the most common problems a podiatrist sees in his practice? Uh, the most common things that podiatrists see in practice are bunions, hammer toes, heel spurs, a condition known as plantar fasciitis, ingrown toenails, fungal toenails, and pain in and about the Achilles tendon on the back of the heel. All right, let's get kind of a a brief overview of what those conditions are and how they are managed. Let's start with bunions. Bunions. First of all, bunions are generally hereditary in origin. So if you see it in another family member, then you can realize that there is at least a likelihood that you you or your offspring could have bunions as well. How does it present clinically? A bunion clinically presents as a foot that looks wider than you would think it would according to the person's morphology. So if you look down at a foot, you would see a with a bunion, you would see a big toe that is deviated towards the lesser toes. In other words, it's going towards the midline of the body or towards the midline of the foot and towards the baby toe. At the base of that, there is a prominence of the first metatarsal head, and that is known as the bunion itself. 
Clinically, what it presents, typically it is seen with a fallen arch foot or a flat type of foot, and that is where the ankle rolls inward a little bit, and there, therein lies the underlying origin of the bunion. And how is it treated? Uh, typically, we treat a bunion uh, that is incipient or early on with an insert in the shoe known as an orthotic. An orthotic is a device that will take the, the flat-footedness that I mentioned earlier and uh, alleviate that by elevating the arch and taking the weight and putting the bias of the weight when you bear weight on your feet more towards the outer side of your foot, which takes pressure off of the bunion. That in conjunction with a shoe that has a very toe-friendly uh, toe box or a, a wide toe box so that there's room for the bunion. If uh, after several uh, years or attempts of treatment with orthotics and wider shoes and so forth, then the surgical intervention is typically advocated for bunions. All right, what's a hammer toe? A hammer toe is a toe which, if you look at it, looks like it's cocked up at the first joint of the toe. So it sits up higher than the other toes on the uh, foot when the foot is on the ground, and it frequently is associated with a bunion. That movement of the big toe towards the lesser toes oftentimes unseats or pushes up a second and sometimes a third toe, and that creates a condition known as a hammer toe, which basically looks like a hammer sitting on top of the foot. And how does it present clinically? Clinically, you will see a usually a callus or a corn type of tissue on the top of the first joint of the toe, and that toe is elevated above the other toes on the uh, what we call the transverse plane. So if you look down and you saw one or two toes sticking up above the other toes and the end of the toe is bent downward, that's known as a hammer toe configuration. And how is it treated? Hammer toes uh, typically are treated surgically, whereby the underlying cause of the hammer toe is corrected first, and then the hammer toe is corrected by uh, minor bone remodeling. The underlying cause of the, the hammer toe, as I alluded to earlier, oftentimes is bunion, so frequently you're fixing a bunion at the same time as you're fixing the hammer toe, which is the result of the bunion in the first place. What about plantar fasciitis? Plantar fasciitis is pain at the base of the heel on the underside of the foot, and this is a very common condition. It oftentimes manifests uh, in people who are active and also people who are inactive, believe it or not. So it usually manifests as pain on initially arising when you first get out of bed or after you get out of a chair if you've been sitting for a while. It is pain that is usually relenting in the beginning, which means you walk on it a little bit and it gets better. And as it progresses, if you don't have correct treatment for it, it becomes unrelenting, which is pain all the time at the underside of the heel bone. The hallmark of treatment for a plantar fasciitis is to get the Achilles tendon stretched out. The plantar fascia is a tissue that is a broad band of fibrous tissue that attaches from the heel bone and goes all the way to the ball of the foot. And it is pulled upon by the Achilles tendon in the back of the heel. People who are very fit oftentimes will develop calf muscles that are stronger and thus tighter than the average calf muscle. That creates an ongoing pull on the plantar fascia, and that generally relates to an inflammatory condition known as fasciitis. So the fasciitis, the typical problem that we have is it's caused by an excess pull of the Achilles tendon on the plantar fascia, and the key to that is getting a good Achilles tendon stretching program going. All right. What about something simple like corns? Corns are the the product of friction of a shoe against a part of the foot. Typically, it's seen on the first joint of the toes, and oftentimes the second toe is the one seen the most often. 
the two treatments that are common for that is get the shoe spot stretched where the corn sticks up so there's less friction on that spot and buffing this down with a pumice stone or some other type of device which will file away some of the layers and using an emollient, a cream to soften that, will oftentimes help alleviate some of the discomfort from hammer toes with corns. Are you one of the things, as I look down at my own feet, I'm so sorry that I didn't realize how uh, what I did early on would be reflected in my toenails. One of the biggest problems that people see is toenail fungus. I'm difficult to treat. What are you doing for that now? Well, the the gold standard for fungal toenails, if they are, in fact, really infected all the way from the base of the toenail to the end of the toe is an oral medication called terbinafen or Lamisil. Interestingly, a study just came out within the last week that indicated the efficacy of this drug and the safety profile. Uh, early on when they first came out with this drug, which admittedly is many years ago, there were reports in the literature that it could cause uh, altered liver function studies. But in a fairly large cohort that just in a study that just came out within the last, like I said, week or so, they had a fairly large number of patients who were treated with Lamisil, even some of those that already had prior liver function um, tests that had alterations in the test, and there were no untoward effects. Uh, the efficacy of this drug is about 80%, which means about 8 out of 10 people that take it for the full course will get a cure of the fungal nails. But again, this is only for nails that are from the base of the nail all the way to the end of the toe. And it is a serious drug to consider. So if you have fungus that doesn't go all the way to the base of the toenail, the best alternative is to debride or cut them back, file them very thin on a weekly basis, and use some sort of a topical antifungal. There's uh, fungoid tincture and fungicure and all sorts of other uh, over-the-counter products that can be effective, but they can only be effective if you have if you simply file this down so it's very, very thin so the medication can get into where the fungus actually lives. One of the things that you mentioned often when we've talked is how the improper selection of shoes impacts the long-term health of the foot. Could you talk a little bit about shoes? People should select shoes, especially women's shoes. Well, the first thing we should think about is stay away from man-made materials in all foot gear, be it for women, men, or children. Uh, Man-made materials have a tendency to promote perspiration. Perspiration is generally held close to the foot with the man-made material, and that promotes fungal infection. As far as the morphology or the configuration of the shoe, especially for women, a heel of about an inch and a half high should be the maximum that is worn on a daily basis. And the toe box, the front of the shoe, should be rounded and not excessively pointed such that we don't create undue influence on the toes to try to exacerbate bunion conditions or hammer toe conditions. The woman who wears a heel more than an inch and a half, maybe two or three inch high heel, every day on a daily basis has that tendency to shorten up the calf muscle and shorten up the Achilles tendon, which creates excess pull of the Achilles tendon on the plantar fascia again. And this actually I have seen in my practice many times over the years where you get a quite elderly lady who has gotten so many years under her belt, so to speak, with high heels on that she can't go into flat shoes because her Achilles tendon will not let her heel go to the ground anymore. So in, in reality, this seems like a simple fashion statement that has gone awry, but it can actually create a fairly disabling condition. What about people who run? What kind of... Uh... Uh, shoes should they select? Often they're selected for cosmetic purposes or reputation or the fact that they're popular. But how should you yes. select a shoe for walking and how should you select a shoe for running? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And they, the, over the years, everybody has sort of gravitated towards calling every shoe that you would wear for an athletic endeavor, in quotes, a sneaker, end of quote. And a sneaker really is, it's, that's a meaningless word. It doesn't really de- denote anything. But the um, the typical concept of what a sneaker would look like would be a something like the skateboard shoes, a flat shoe with no support in the arch and uh, very minimal uh, construction. If you're going to run, you want to wear a shoe that's got, interestingly, a little bit of an elevated heel because that takes away some of the shock on landing and it takes away some of the stress on the Achilles tendon for propulsion forward. The uh, athletic shoes typically can be and are made of man-made materials in spite of what I said earlier, but these are typically the shoes that are not worn every day for everyday purposes. The other thing is if a person has a low arch foot or a fallen arch foot, and especially if you have that with a bunion, the athletic shoe you want to look at should be a varus wedge, V-A-R-U-S wedge shoe, which puts a, a little inclination on the inner side of the shoe to lift the weight away from the inner side of the foot to the outside of the foot. And this can alleviate discomfort in the tendons that hold up the arch and the muscles that hold up the arch. On the other hand, if you have a very high arch foot, this is a rigid foot, which the arch is really high and the weight is already with the bias on the outer side of the foot. Pronation, if you said, what does a pronated foot look like? It looks like a foot with a flat arch. So the the arch is collapsed downward, and the uh, if you look at the back of the heel bone in the pronated foot, it's deviated outwardly. And the as I said, the arch looks low, and it typically is associated with pressure on the big toe, which pushes it towards the baby toe side of the foot. So a pronated foot in an athletic shoe should be treated with an anti-pronation shoe or a varus wedge shoe. And that is a that is a uh, a thick a thicker part of the insole and the heel on the inner side of the shoe and a thinner part on the outside, so it makes your weight want to fall to the outer side of the foot, which alleviates the pressure on the inner arch, which then alleviates pressure on the muscle called the posterior tibial muscle, which helps hold up your arch. Uh, you talked in the past about the issues that podiatrists deal with. I know that um, increasingly. Uh, in podiatry, you're dealing with ankle injuries as well. Tell us uh, about that evolution, and uh, where are we with that? Well, podiatrists are treating ankle and lower extremity uh, conditions nowadays, so the podiatrist in this state is licensed to treat uh, every every muscle from uh, the calf muscle down and every joint from the ankle down. So the uh, typical things that we see in podiatry in the way of ankle problems are lateral ankle sprains where the typical uh, condition is seen where a person is running on an uneven surface or walking on an uneven surface or a trail and they slip and the foot falls to the outside and the, uh, the, the foot buckles under as the weight goes to the outside and there's pain on the outer ankle bone. This is associated with oftentimes ligamentous tears there are three ligaments that hold uh, hold together the outer part of the ankle, which is actually a fairly weak arrangement. The inner side of the ankle has a much thicker ligamentous arrangement. And those ligaments are prone to being overstretched or sometimes torn. If they're overstretched, it's simply a matter of resting for a month or two from the vig- vigorous activities. If there's a torn uh, ligament, then oftentimes that requires surgical repair. I know there's a concept in podiatry called minimum incision surgery. What does that mean, and how has that changed um, what you do? 
Well, minimal incision surgery uh, has been around for a long time in podiatry. It, uh, in the, the early uh, 80s and the late 70s, it was exceedingly popular, and it was also associated with a fair number of complications because um, the procedures were not what we call fixated, and I'll explain that in a minute. So let's say you had a bunion, and it was corrected in the 70s or the 80s, the 1970s, 1980s, with minimal incision surgery. A podiatrist would take an instrument that would look like a dentist drill, make a small opening on the side of the foot, and, and grind down the bunion deformity, and then that, that bunion deformity would be liquefied and turned into a paste which would be extracted from the foot. This was treated with bandaging or sometimes a cast, and the patient was allowed to weight bear on it right away. Over the years, they, they did get good results with a lot of these procedures, but they found that there were a lot of what, calls, what were called non-unions, meaning the bones didn't heal properly because they weren't fixated together. They were just cut and held together with tape. So the new minimal incision surgery uses living x-ray called fluoroscopy, but then through a separate minimal incision, a screw is inserted, and that screw holds the two parts together, and that alleviates the problem that happened in the late 70s and the 80s when minimal incision surgery was not using fixation devices. People are now they're used all over Europe and all over the northern, northern America continent. All right, so that, uh, that's still, still a, a popular procedure, but done differently. Yes, it's still a very popular procedure. In fact, the popularity is gaining. Every year I see more and more articles in the foot and ankle and orthopedic literature uh, about minimal incision surgery and the advances that are being made with the different screws and other types of pins that are held to fixate the bones. The question I always ask you when we have this, this discussion is, what uh, can you do now that you couldn't do 10, 15 years ago, and what are some of the more interesting things happening in podiatry for the future? Well, the things that we can do now are we have very sophisticated joint replacements. The big toe joint frequently becomes arthritic, and we have uh, new types of implants or joint replacements that are very uh, user-friendly. They allow weight-bearing the day of the surgery. They allow instant uh, range of motion uh, uh, exercises, and that gets a patient going quite quickly as compared to the old days when that joint used to be fused. There is now a long track record of total ankle replacements, and total ankle replacements uh, are becoming, they're not quite, but they're becoming the gold standard where ankle fusion for an arthritic ankle used to be the way to go. But now we're finding that the people who are having the ankle replacements are having longevity of their procedure, and they're able to um, live life much more actively because the ankle is not fused but still mobile. You know, when you go into the pharmacies and you go into the drugstores, you see a lot of products by Dr. Scholl. Uh, what do you think about Dr. Scholl products? Well, Dr. Scholl's products are good for the simple problems. Uh, a little athlete's foot, uh, a, a device to rub on the corn that you might have on your second toe, uh, a cushion to wear in your shoe where you're getting a blister. But as far as the more advanced conditions, such as an infection, an infected ingrown toenail, a bunion, or a rigid hammer toe deformity, or a heel spur, those types of products of Dr. Scholl's and others would be inappropriate. You've had a long career in podiatry. What have you enjoyed most about it? The most enjoyable part of my career has been the fact that when you have a patient come in to meet you and they have a problem, it's unlike where a patient comes into a medical doctor and has high blood pressure and then it's a process where you have to treat the, the, the hypertension with uh, obesity uh, regimens and that sort of thing. 
With podiatry, frequently you can come in with an ingrown toenail or a hammer toe problem, and it can be cured or created. You can create a cure within one or two visits. So it's the immediate gratification of relief of pain that I enjoyed the most. Thank you, Dr. Giacomo, for taking the time to join us to talk about foot problems. A lot of good information there that if you didn't understand or you didn't pay attention to the things that affect you, go back and listen to the podcast again, and I think you'll get even more information the second time around. Absolutely. It's very important information, and it's something that affects all of us. Uh, I was very struck by the idea that, you know, they always say it, but you really realize the decisions you make when you're younger, especially as someone who loves to wear athletic basketball shoes and sneakers and all that, uh, can have long-term effects on your foot health Mm -hmm. when you get older. Um, So it it definitely makes you reconsider. Every time I look at my toenails, I uh, am reminded of that. Well, I've never seen your feet, but uh, I, I'll i take your word on it. Uh, and you never will. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump back to um, a little bit about the virus, because on social media this week, we were getting blown up with questions about vaccines. Um, and so I'm going to share a couple with you and, and just see what your take is on them. This one from Dylan Finnerty on Instagram. Is it better to wait? a while after the initial vaccine is released before getting inoculated? I think it's better to wait until you're comfortable with the information that you're receiving. Uh, As a physician, I believe that if they release a vaccine, it's been through phase one, two, and three phases of patients without substantial and significant side effects, and apparently with effectiveness. And I would not myself hesitate to get a vaccine uh, early on. Always in situations where we're studying medications, there are phase four studies. So that if, in fact, there's a problem with the vaccine that didn't appear during the study, it may appear during that phase four trial. So you may want to wait until uh, several people have taken it, until two or three months have gone by. I would be comfortable personally taking a vaccine right out of the box because, you know, it has already been studied. Uh, to my satisfaction, by so many people. Right. So with that said, with how politicized it seems like the vaccine has become, and so many pharmaceutical companies racing for a vaccine, and and President Trump saying we'll have one before the election, um, with so many companies racing for this, is it possible that the drive to be first to market uh, will come at the price of safety? And that question was from Uh, Supreme Plug G on Instagram. I don't think so. I doubt that very seriously. I think that there's so much scrutiny by so many scientists and physicians about the studies that would justify the appearance of a virus uh, vaccine on the market. I think the problem is people don't trust Trump. And so consequently, anything he's associated with automatically becomes a subject of suspicion. But I, I don't think that the companies that are making vaccines will fudge any of the data I think they are doing uh, a lot of things relatively quickly, but I don't sense there have been many shortcuts. And here again, if the FDA says this is a safe and effective vaccine because we've done it on 30,000 people, then that would be okay. Well, that's fair enough. Uh, this one comes in from Case on Instagram. Can you explain how vaccines differ and how long does it typically take to determine efficacy? The vaccines are different in how they 
approach attacking the virus. Uh, almost all on uh, the development of antibodies, and it is the efficacy is, is determined by how much antibody production you get. Not only how much antibody production you get, but how much antibody production you get that is effective against the virus. And so they all work by stimulating your own immune system uh, to make uh, antibodies based upon a similarity between the vaccine and the virus. Understood. I think that's great information that a lot of people don't know. Uh, lastly, this one comes in from Copeland4451 on Instagram. Is it realistic that there will be a vaccine before the 2020 election? The answer is no. Uh, there's no way now that uh, they can get a vaccine out of phase three trials, have people look at the data. Um, but what's interesting about it is they're assuming from the basis of preliminary data that the vaccine will be approved because they've already started making doses of the vaccine. I understand that 150 million doses of a vaccine is a target, uh, and some of the vaccines have already been produced, are being produced in bottles. So that um, I don't think that uh, it's going to happen before the election. No. I think all um, President Trump wants is just the specter that it will be available very shortly after he's reelected. And in that case, I hope we never have a vaccine. But um, I don't think it'll be ready before the election. We know we could talk about that all day, but I think we've run out of time. First of all, I'd like to thank Dr. DiGiacomo for joining us and giving us all this information on foot problems. I'd like to thank you, Jason, for putting this uh, project together. But most of all, I'd like to thank our audience who, who listens to our podcast. Hope they will share it with their friends. And I want them to remember, health is your biggest asset, so protect it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lenore. Black Doctor Speak is a weekly podcast sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation with us on social media at Black Doctor Speak on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and on Black Doc Speak on Twitter. If you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Amazon, and iHeart, or wherever you get your podcast. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.